Last week, we began a new four-part sermon series simply entitled, Once Upon a Time, the Beginning of the Four Gospels. All four Gospels have a different launching point. It is Mark who begins with the public ministry of Jesus. Luke intertwines the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. It's Matthew who traces the line and lineage of Christ all the way back to Father Abraham and John simply says, in the beginning. This morning, I want us to focus our attention upon Luke's gospel. When you look at Luke's gospel, there are at least two things that become abundantly clear. First, Luke is the longest gospel by word and verse count. Secondly, Luke is the only gospel that has a sequel. The book of Acts is the second portion of a two-volume work. Both Luke and Acts, written by the same man named Luke, written to the same man named Theophilus. Luke was a Gentile believer. He traveled with the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys. He was a doctor by trade. Luke probably wrote this gospel in the 60s of the first century, sometime after Mark, and many believe it could even be after Matthew. He wrote this gospel tract to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was a patron. He was a person of rank. He was an important individual. In all likelihood, he was the one who gave the finances to underwrite the project. Luke says in the opening lines that he gave a careful investigation of everything from the beginning. He wanted to write an orderly account For you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is the recipient, not just of Luke, but also of the book of Acts. Theophilus was probably a Gentile believer. He was probably one who had trusted in Christ. Yet somewhere along the way, he questioned his faith. He wondered where he fit in this gospel story. He saw that the church of Jesus Christ was a place that was racially diverse, heavily persecuted, and he wondered what role did he play in the gospel story. Friend, if you have ever had questions of your faith, if you've ever wrestled with the dark night of the soul, if you have ever contemplated what is my place in this world and do I have a place in God's church and his gospel, If you've ever had questions like that, then I want you to know that this gospel was written just for you. The name Theophilus, it means beloved of God. Now, I do believe that Theophilus was a real dude. I think he was a real man and he really was the recipient of this gospel track. But I think Luke is also playing on that word because that name could be your name. It could be my name. It could be any of us who are friends of God, beloved of God. Now, certainly in Luke's gospel, there are many of the traditional Christmas narrative portions of the story. We read about the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. We hear about the angels singing about good news of great joy. We see that they run off to a stable and Jesus is born and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes and he's placed in a manger. All those things that are so familiar to us with the Christmas story, much of that is found in Luke's version. But Luke does not begin with the birth narrative of Jesus. Luke begins with the birth announcement of the one named John the Baptist. 
It's with that in mind that I invite you to take a copy of God's Word. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I want to read in your hearing verses 67 to 79. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 1, allow me to begin at verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago. Salvation to our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of the enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. As as time dawned on the beginning of the first century, the people of God wondered, can the God of the people be trusted? It had been a long time since God had raised up a prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. In fact, it had been 400 years since the prophets God had not spoken through anyone to declare a fresh word to his people. God imposed upon himself a gag order. He gave his people the sovereign silent treatment. From the vantage point of humanity, it looked like the prophets were a thing of the past. It appeared as if God was never going to speak again. It looked as if God was cold and aloof. Even the coming of the Messiah was something that was highly questioned and debated. It had been a long time since someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel had stood up to say, thus saith the Lord. Ringing in the ears of the people of the first century were the last words of God spoken 400 years prior through the prophet Malachi. For the last line of Malachi's holy book simply says, as he quotes the Lord, that I will send the prophet Elijah in that great and dreadful day of the Lord. The people waited and they wondered. And they were asking each other, asking themselves, asking God, is God ever going to show himself strong and mighty again. Maybe there are times in your life when you can relate to that. Periods of spiritual dryness. It seems as if that God is distant from you. That God is giving you the silent treatment. Giving you the cold shoulder. 
What do you do when God has imposed a gag order? What do you do when you want to hear from God and it seems as if God is saying nothing? What do you do when you're experiencing the dark night of the soul and you wrestle and you plead and you ask God to show up and to help and to heal, but it seems that God does nothing and says nothing? How do you handle it when you want God to speak and there's divine silence? Luke begins his gospel by showing us that the people of God were still worshiping, still praying, and still serving. There's a great lesson in that. That even when you are spiritually parched, even when you are having just a a difficult time in your journey with the Lord, that in those dark moments, in those bleak moments, times you still worship you still pray and you still serve because one day before it's all said and done God will show up in the worship and he'll show up in the prayers and he'll show up in the serving so you as the people of God you keep on trusting God you keep on worshiping even when you don't feel like it you keep on praying even when you feel like your prayers don't um, go through the ceiling and you keep on serving even when the last thing you want to do is serve God and serve his people you continue to do that and one day God who was silent before will speak again this is what we hear this is what we see in Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 5 it's there that Luke introduces us to a lovely couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth Zachariah was one of 18,000 priests living and serving during the days of the first century Zechariah and Elizabeth, by all accounts, had a good marriage. Zechariah had a great job. They also probably lived in a nice house. But it seemed that one thing eluded them. Just like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah of the Old Testament, Elizabeth was barren, unable to have a child. It's not that they didn't want to have children. Oh, they wanted to have children, and they tried and tried, but they weren't able to. And this was something that I guess they had tried their best to come to grips with. And we see that Zechariah is faithfully serving the Lord alongside his wife. They're described as blameless and upright. To say they're blameless is to say they are morally pure. To regard them as upright is to say that they faithfully adhere to the sacrificial system as it's prescribed by God through Moses. This is the best that Judaism has to offer. In the first century, we have a husband and a wife. They love God. They love each other. They're serving the Lord. And even in their suffering and even in their agony and even in their disappointment and even in the darkness of their spiritual life, they are still worshiping, they're still praying, and they're still serving. Zechariah was one of 18,000 priests. He was in one of the 24 divisions. Aaron had 24 sons and All 24 of his sons, they were divided into the 24 divisions of the priesthood. Every division was assigned a given week to serve at the temple twice a year. When Luke catches up with Zechariah, it's one of those times. Zechariah's division is serving at the temple there in Jerusalem. And he's doing it faithfully. There's a lot to do in the temple. 
There are all the prayers that need to be offered. There are the daily sacrifices that need to be done. There's always hustle and bustle, a lot of people moving in throughout the temple complex. Much of the responsibilities that were assigned in those days were assigned by the casting of lots. And the casting of lots was done and, and Zechariah's number came up. It was time for him to go and burn incense at the altar of God. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you, but for Zechariah, this was a chance of a lifetime. Just do the mathematics, you realize that this happens about once uh, in a person's lifetime. When they're given the privilege to go on behalf of the people into that sacred place where the altar is, where they could burn incense, that as individuals are praying outside, the incense on the inside is being raised up to the heavens, symbolic that the prayers are being lifted up unto the heavens, and this prayer would be offered up right before the evening sacrifice. This was a huge responsibility and Zechariah did not want to mess it up. When his number came up, he thought to himself, listen, I've been training for a moment just like this. I mean, I've been studying all my life. I have been made and crafted for this moment. I do not want to mess it up. So in his mind, he refamiliarized himself with the altar area. He thought in his mind's eye the position of the altar and the table and the lampstand and the water base and the basin of water and he thought to himself I know exactly how everything is I know how to burn incense I know what I'm supposed to do I've got this no problem he enters the temple with the weight of the nation on his shoulders he does not want to mess this up after all people are outside praying they're waiting for him to burn the incense come back out and give that word of blessing unto the nation of Israel he makes his way in. He's about to burn the incense. And all of a sudden, an angel appears to the right of the altar. Now he thinks to himself rather quickly, no textbook ever told me that there would be an angel to the right side of the altar. And he becomes discombobulated just for a bit. He becomes petrified and afraid. Have you ever noticed that every time an angel shows up in the Bible, that the people who see that angel are shocked? probably because they're not looking for the angel. They are scared out of their mind. After all, maybe you can relate to this. There are times I can be standing in the kitchen and Jane Ellen doesn't know that I'm there. She comes around the corner and she's scared out of her flip-flops, right? I mean, she's shocked and I'm no angel. And she, can you imagine if she saw an angel, a real angel, how petrified she would be? And so this is exactly how Zachariah is. He is shocked out of his mind. The angel then begins to talk to the priest. The angel gives a prenatal ultrasound of the baby that is to be born that Zechariah doesn't even know about. The angel says to Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth, she will conceive. She's going to give birth to a bouncing baby boy. You're going to give him the name John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you and to all the people of Israel. He will take a Nazarite vow, which means that no razor will ever touch his head and no fermented drink will ever cross his lips. The last thing the angel said to Zechariah about his soon-to-be-born son is that your son named John will go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah and he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think there are two reasons why Luke begins his gospel with the story of John the Baptist. For starters, uh, Luke understood that the last word of the Old Testament spoken 
from God was a word about the coming of Elijah. And Luke also knew that this one named John the Baptist would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he wanted the first word of the New Testament to be the same first word as the last word of the Old Testament, which was a a declaration of the coming of the one like Elijah who would make ready the people of the Lord. In Malachi, the Lord just simply said, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. All throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord coincides with the coming of Messiah. That when Messiah comes, that will be the great day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord, according to Malachi, will be great and dreadful. How can something be both great and dreadful? It depends on your perspective to it. If you're a believer in God, the day of the Lord is great. If you're a non-believer in God, the day of the Lord will be dreadful. It all depends on your perspective to the day of the Lord. It all depends upon your understanding of the coming of Messiah. If you are a believer in Lord Jesus, it's a great day. If you are one who rejects the Lord Jesus as Messiah, it is a dreadful day. I think that that Luke wants the last word of God and the first word of God to be the same thing. The last word of God in the Old Testament, the first word of God in the New Testament is a word about the coming of the prophet-like man named Elijah. I think there's a second reason why Luke starts with the story of John the Baptist. And the second reason is because I think that Theophilus can relate to John the Baptist. For those of you who know John's story, you may recall that later in his ministry, he will be incarcerated because he spoke against the king's immoral affair. And at first, John the Baptist is not worried about it. Why? Because he knows that Jesus is Messiah. And Jesus came to set the captives free. So it won't be long and Jesus will come over the horizon. It won't be long. Jesus will come and set me free. And John the Baptist was in prison and he waited and he waited and he waited and he waited. The days gave way to weeks. The weeks gave way to months. The months gave way to years. Eventually, he called his disciples to him and said, go find Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for somebody else? Do you hear the doubt that's in his voice? Do you hear the fear that's in his question? He's wondering, did I put all my eggs in the wrong basket? For I I put everything that I had in the Jesus basket. And Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Are you the real Messiah? Because if you were a real Messiah, you'd set the captive free. And I've been captive, and I didn't do anything wrong. And John the Baptist must be having a dark night of the soul where he asks the question, Jesus, are you Messiah, or did I miss it? Are you Messiah, or did I choose the wrong one? Are you the Messiah, or should we look for somebody else? It's in this this, uh, gut-wrenching questioning that John the Baptist has that I think Theophilus can identify with. And maybe you can too. Maybe you know what it is to wrestle, to question your faith. Maybe you know what it is to struggle with anxiety and even depression. Faith can sometimes be hard, even for the faithful. 
Faith can sometimes be hard and challenging and difficult, even for those of us in the faith. Somebody like John the Baptist, somebody like Theophilus, and Luke writes his gospel track, and he starts out with the person of John the Baptist, I think, in some way, to communicate to Theophilus, hey, you've got a place in this gospel. You've got a place in Jesus' church because you are wrestling with questions that John the Baptist wrestled with. In the great announcement of the angel to Zechariah about his boy named John, he says he will be like Elijah. He will make ready a people for the Lord. Now you anticipate that the priest accepts the word of God. You, you, you have a holy hunch that Zechariah is going to believe this angel. But instead, Zechariah respond, responds with doubt. He asks the question, how can I be sure of this? Because my wife is well along in years, which is a really nice way of saying she's old. She's old. I'm old. We're well beyond childbearing years. How is this possible? The angel took exception to the doubt of Zechariah. The angel declared, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God Almighty. He has sent me here with a divine statement to you. And now you don't believe me? You don't believe God? You don't believe the one who sent me? From this moment until you see it happen, you will not speak. And for nine months, the preacher was muted. Don't anybody say amen. (laughs) For nine months, the preacher couldn't preach. For nine months, the preacher could not talk. For nine months, he could not say a word. He could not allow uh, air to pass through his vocal cords and form syllables to make words. He couldn't say anything. Zachariah was muted. He was speechless. He was silent. Now, all the while, I told you the people are outside. They're praying. They're waiting for the priest to come out to give them the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you rest. They're waiting for that blessing. And and Zechariah's been in there a long time. Eventually, Zechariah comes out. And Zechariah can't speak. He can't give the word of blessing. Everybody knows something's going on because Luke just said he made signs to tell them he had seen a vision. Can you imagine what those signs were? I mean, he's saying, like in there, I saw an angel. It's really amazing, but he can't say anything. He just makes signs that there's some angel in there, and now I can't talk. He goes back home, and he acts out in faith, I guess, because Elizabeth becomes pregnant. For nine months, he can't say a word. In the early hours, he can't say good morning. Later in the day, He cannot say, pass me the salt at dinner. He can't greet anybody in the marketplace. He can't whisper into his wife's ear. He can't yell at the fool who just cut him off at the grocery line. He can't say anything. He cannot do anything. But all the while, he's worshiping, he's praying, and he's serving. Because God shows up when we worship and pray and serve. He continues to read the Bible. He continues to think. He continues to mull over that prenatal ultrasound that Gabriel had given him about John. That this one growing in Elizabeth's womb, his name's going to be John. He's going to be a joy, a delight. He's going to be great. He's going to be like Elijah. 
Some of you know the story of Elijah, don't you? This is the man who said, there will not be dew or rain in the next few years except in my word. And for three and a half years it did not rain. This is the man, Elijah, who would stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And certainly the Lord had said it. This man named Elijah raised a widow's son in Zarephath. This one named Elijah defeated single-handedly 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel. This man named Elijah never tasted death. He was swept up into a chariot of fire. This man was a great prophet. And the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah, your boy is going to be like Elijah. Woo! Your boy is going to prepare God's people. And as the baby grew in Elizabeth's belly, so did the faith of Zechariah. Zachariah's faith grew and grew and grew over those nine months. Because once again, let me just remind you, faith is sometimes hard even for the faithful. Even for the priest, the preacher, the deacon, the Sunday school teacher, even for the person who's been in church all their life. Sometimes faith is hard even for the faithful. But if that's you, my friend, keep on worshiping and keep on praying and keep on serving and remember the word of God that's been given unto you. Eventually it came time for Elizabeth to deliver and she gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. On the eighth day, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the young infant went back to the temple as is their custom, so that the boy could be circumcised and named. Apparently, Zachariah and Elizabeth had gotten good at sign language. Maybe they wrote notes on post-it notes and stuck them everywhere around the house. Maybe they just had an unlimited plan and they texted each other all the time. I don't know exactly how they communicated, but they got pretty good at whatever method and mode of communication they had. Because Zachariah repeatedly told his wife, that boy's name needs to be John. That boy's name will be John. His name is going to be John. On the eighth day, when they went to the temple, they took friends and family. That wasn't uncommon. This is a big deal. For your son to be circumcised, for him to receive his name, to go to the church for the very first time, a big deal. As the family and friends traveled, they thought to themselves, and they had already agreed as friends of family, Listen, we think his name needs to be Zach Jr. It's the least thing we can do for that poor mute preacher. I mean, he can't say a word. And, uh, you know, uh, he's probably going to die muted. And uh, so the least we can do is let his name live on in this new life. So I think his name needs to be Zach Jr. Does that sound good to you? The friend said, yeah, sounds great to me. What about you? I think it's a great idea. What about you? Swell, I was thinking the very same thing. So all the friends, all the other family members, they said, you know what? We think his name needs to be Zach Jr. They get ready to name the boy. And Elizabeth says, uh, his name will be John. John? Why'd you choose the name John? Everybody's named John. Here's John, there's John, everywhere's John, John. Everybody's named John. John's name's so common. Everybody's named John. You don't want to be named John. Nobody in your family's named John. No uncle, no grandfather, no forefather. Nobody's named John. Why John? Why'd you pick John? Why not Zach Jr.? That's a strong name, Zachariah. Why don't you choose Zach Jr.? 
Elizabeth said, no, no, his name must be John. They said, well, let's just check with the old man. So they took a tablet to Zechariah. What do you think? What do you want your boy's name to be? You want it to be Zach Jr., don't you? Wink, wink, nose nudge. He takes the stylus pen and he simply writes, his name is John. As soon as he wrote the letters John, his lips were loosed. His mouth was opened. If you were Zachariah and you could not speak for nine months and all of a sudden you came out of the coma, all of a sudden you came to the point where you could speak, how would you feel and what would you say? Somebody would be angry. Somebody would feel entitled. It's about time. I've been mute for nine months. It's about time for God to open up my mind. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind right now. Some of you would be angry. Some of you would be frustrated. Some of you would have a spirit of entitlement rise up inside of you and you give God what for. Can I tell you what Zechariah does? He simply praises God. That's it. What I read for you a few moments ago is called Zechariah's song. It's really Zechariah's sermon. It simply says he prophesied. I don't know if there's any melodious tune to it. I don't know if there are notes on a page. I don't know if it's really a song uh, that goes up and down. I just know it's a sermon. He preaches. The preacher gets to preach again. That's a good time for an amen. The preacher gets to preach again. The preacher stands up and he preaches and he says, praise God. He praises God for two reasons. Number one, he says, I praise you, God, because redemption has come. Secondly, I praise you because, God, you can be trusted. Those are two mighty fine reasons to praise God. Zechariah praised God. Why? Because redemption had come. He speaks about this redemption in past tense as if it had already taken place. He knows that his son is not Messiah. He knows his son is the forerunner to the Messiah. He knows that Messiah is on his way. But he speaks about it as if it's already done, as if it's already happened. Because in good biblical theology, things that are so certain to happen, even though if they take place in the future, can be written in past tense as if it had already taken place. So he says salvation has come. Not salvation is coming. Not salvation will come. But he says that redemption has already come. Redemption is here. So we can praise God because God has given redemption unto his people. Redemption has come. John, the beloved disciple in his gospel, will simply say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Redemption has come. Martin Luther, that great Protestant reformer, will say of incarnation that it is God sinking himself down into our flesh. In other words, redemption has come. God has been good to his promises. God has sent redemption. God has sent salvation. Later in the sermon that Zechariah preaches, he turns to his son, that eight-day-old boy, and he says, you will be great. You will will be a mighty prophet of God. You will reveal the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins 
according to the tender mercy of God. Now that's a mouthful right there. He says of John that you will proclaim the knowledge of salvation. And the only way salvation takes place is through forgiveness of sins. And the only way forgiveness of sins happens is because of the tender mercy of God. This is what God has done. This is God's redemption. You know, Jesus came to earth not for condemnation but for salvation. Jesus came not to condemn us. We were condemned already. If God did not want to save us, all God had to do was nothing. Just sit back on his throne, kick up his feet, and absolutely do nothing. And we would live and die in our sinful condemnation and go to a rightful place called hell, which is eternal separation from God Almighty. If God did not love us, if God did not want to save us, if God just wanted us to stay condemned, all God had to do was nothing. Take a hands-off approach. But because of his tender mercy, because of his goodness, because of his greatness, God sent Jesus. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins. We cannot forgive ourselves. Only God can forgive us. Only the perfect sacrifice of the God-man can cover over your sins and mine. And this was all done not because of our uh, might, but because of his mercy. Not because we are good, but because of he, he is great. This was all done because he is great in tender mercy towards us. I wish somebody would get happy in the house. I wish somebody would know just how good God's redemption is because God has redeemed us. God has purchased us. God has set us free. We should be on a path called hell. We should go to a very real place separated from God. But Jesus stepped in and he has forgiven our sins past, present, and future. And because of that, we can say with Zechariah, I've got a reason to praise God. The reason Zechariah praises God is because redemption has come. Secondly, praise God because God can be trusted. Zechariah is telling us, Luke is recording it for us. He is telling Theophilus and everyone who looks like Theophilus, like you or like me, God can be trusted. He's not an absent minded professor, he's not insane. He does not have a forgetful complex. God remembers his promises. And he makes good on those promises. In verse 73 and following, Zechariah in his sermon just simply says, God remembered his oath to Abraham. Oh, God remembered. He did not forget. God remembered. He did not fail to recall. God remembered his oath, his promise. And Zechariah, out of all the promises of God, he pulls on Abraham's promise. That, that in the coming of John to prepare the people for Messiah, that, that God is remembering the promise given all the way back in Abraham's days. Some of you may know the story. That promise was given to us over and over again, but on most dramatic display in Genesis 22. The Lord was testing Abraham, stretching his faith. He said, take your one and only son Isaac. Go to the mountain I show you. 
and there offer him as a burnt sacrifice unto me. The next day, Abraham saddles the donkeys. He grabs a few of his servants. He takes his son, Isaac, brings all the supplies, and off they go. After a three-day journey, they look up, and there in the distance is Mount Moriah. Abraham says to the servants, y'all stay here, for the boy and I will go worship, we will go worship, and we will come back. The writer of the Hebrew letter says that Abraham had already convinced himself that God would raise his son from the dead. Abraham believed in resurrection before they ever made their way up Mount Moriah. As they're walking up Mount Moriah, I think Abraham and his son are having a conversation. I think Abraham is telling him the story of old. I think Abraham is telling his son everything about the vision of God that God had told him to do. And and Abraham speaks to Isaac, and Isaac is not a little five-year-old boy. He's probably a 14-year-old boy. He's big enough and strong enough to whip his old man and run down the mountain if he wanted to. But his faith, his trust was in his earthly dad and in his heavenly dad. And as Isaac is making his way up the mountain, he says to his father, I see that we have the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb to be sacrificed? And Abraham says to his son, God will provide the lamb. And I think that's a more opportunity for more conversation. I think by the time they get on top of Mount Moriah, that Isaac is so convinced that his dad is right that he voluntarily lays himself on the altar. I don't think that the father, Abraham, had to drag his son kicking and screaming up Mount Moriah. I think that Isaac laid himself there. For any parent in the crowd, you know this story gets to you every time you hear it, every time you read it. Because I can visualize that Father Abraham probably shielded the face of his son Isaac because he did not want his son to have to see what was about to happen. And Abraham raised the dagger into the air and as he looked down at his boy's chest, he thought to himself, oh God, please, let me just kill him with one strike because I cannot fathom the possibility of having to stab my son over and over and over again. So let the first blow be a fatal blow. And as he's measuring it up, as he's lining it up, as he's thinking to himself, I can't believe I'm doing this, but God, I trust you and I believe in you. So God, you're going to have to do something mighty and miraculous. Oh God, you're going to have to help me because in this moment, the, the, the eyes of Abraham are flooded with tears. The mind of Abraham flooded with thoughts. And as he's about to drive the dagger into the heart of his son, he's about to, to thrust it down. He's about to kill his son. And as he's about to, about, about to do it, the angel shows us, Abraham, stop. Now I know and God knows that you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one and only son Isaac. And Abraham looks up and there in the thicket is a ram, a male lamb caught by the horns. And Abraham goes and he takes that male lamb and sacrifices it in place of Isaac. This is what Zechariah is thinking about when he thinks about the oath, the promise that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. That through the seed of Abraham, redemption and salvation would come. And I don't know if Zechariah is fully thinking about this, but in his words, you can also see foreshadowing of Mount Calvary. Because when I think of Mount Moriah, I think of Mount Calvary. On Mount Moriah, the promise was given. On Mount Calvary, the promise was kept. On Mount Moriah, the son was spared. On Mount Calvary, the son was slaughtered. On Mount Moriah, life was fleeting. On Mount Calvary, life is forever. On Mount Moriah, 
there is a son who who lives but later dies on Mount Calvary. There is a son who dies but later lives on Mount Moriah. There is a foreshadowing of substitutionary atonement that is that is spoken about. And on Mount Calvary, there is uh, a substitutionary atonement that is supplied in the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus not only is the one who is sacrificed, but he is the one who takes our place as the ram uh, to be sacrificed. And here on Mount Moriah, we see foreshadowing of Mount Calvary. This this is what Zechariah has in mind when he says our God can be trusted. He is a God who makes good on his promises even though it's been 400 years, even though there's been sovereign silence, even though God has not spoken, even though God has not raised up a prophet, God is doing something because God can be trusted. What Luke says to Theophilus, I say to you today, we ought to praise God. Why? Because God is a God who gives redemption that is near and God is a God who always makes good on his promises. I know I've got to sit down, but before I take my seat, can I just remind you that we've been created to praise God. We've been created to praise him. This is the message that Luke wants to start out at the beginning of his gospel as he tells this one named Theophilus, you have a place in God's church. You have a place in the gospel. You've been created to be a believer and to be a, a, a worshiping believer. You've been created to worship and to pray and to serve even when there's sovereign silence. So you praise God. Why do you praise God? I can tell you I praise him. Because he's delivered my redemption. I praise him because God can be trusted. I praise him because though I was a sinner, Christ died on the cross for me in my stead so that I may live. I praise him because if you confess with your mouth Jesus Lord and believe in your heart you God raised him from the dead you will be saved. I praise him because God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I praise him because God is good. I praise him because God is helpful. I praise him because God is healer. I I praise him because he puts a roof over my head. I praise him because he puts food on my table. I praise him because he puts clothes on my back. I praise him because he's trustworthy. I praise him because I can trust him with my past. I praise him because I can trust him with my present. I praise him because I can trust him with my future. I praise him because God is a God who's always worthy of our praise. We will worship him both now and forevermore. For eternity, we will praise the one who's worthy of praise. And here at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke simply tells the audience, we ought to praise God. Just like Zechariah. Zechariah praised God because redemption, your redemption, is near. And God is one who can be trusted because his promises are always sure. So this morning, church, just praise him. This morning, church, just praise him. This morning, church, just praise him because God is worthy of all of our praise. I look out over the crowd and I see more than one Theophilus. I see more than one person struggling in what feels like 400 years of divine silence. Oh, Theophilus, keep worshiping, 
Keep praying. Keep serving. There may be some people here who aren't even believers in Jesus yet. Today would be a great day for you to surrender your life unto the one who came to seek and save you. There may be a few Theophilus here who need to come and join this church. Pray at this altar. Give some stuff unto the Lord. Whatever it is this morning, I want you to know with certainty the things you've been taught. God is good. He's faithful to his promises. Redemption is near. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Father, we pray that you move and that we as your people will respond accordingly. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.